Today's episode of Creepscast is sponsored by Shudder. Try Shudder free for 30 days and go to Shudder.com and use promo code MrCreeps. And Wondery. You can listen to amazing podcasts one week early and ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. Hello everyone. I hope your October has been going wild and has been extra spooky. I'm very excited to share this week's stories with you. They are guaranteed to give you the chills and put you in that Halloween spirit. Let us begin and drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. My son took me skydiving for my birthday. I saw something in the clouds that defies explanation. Written by Kyle Harrison When my son called me over to his house last Sunday, I thought it was some kind of emergency. His wife is 35 weeks pregnant and my wife and I have been sitting by the phone, waiting for the news that they were rushing to the hospital. Maybe that's a slight exaggeration, but you get my draft. We were excited to become grandparents, so I didn't even expect him to surprise me with an early birthday gift. What is this? I asked as he passed me the small envelope. My birthday wasn't for another week, so to be honest, I was thinking it had to be a simple gift card or maybe just cash. I wasn't expecting anything major. Instead, when I opened up the birthday message, I found two tickets to a local airfield inside. Now, I was both shocked and confused. No, seriously, Trevor. What is this? I said with a nervous laugh. Well, you've always been talking about having a little adventure and living on the edge, Dad. And well, you aren't getting any younger. He said, slipping his hands into his pockets. His wife nudged him a little and remarked. What he means is that he hoped you could do this together before the baby comes. I do admit, I was speechless. He was right though. As he grew up, I've always been a bit of a wistful about the things that I've missed out on. I've never been upset about raising a family or anything like that. Of course, and I made sure to let my children know that. But I guess he must have caught on to the subtle hints that I was giving for the past year. That I wanted to do something extraordinary. In my dreams, it had always been mountain climbing, snowboarding, or something like that. What he was offering was definitely unexpected. So, we'll head out to the airfield around dawn, just as the clouds are breaking. I got in touch with Pete from the college. He's got a pilot license and he can take us up as high as we want for the jump. Trevor said with a broad smile. It sounded frightening. I've never even been in a plane. And now my son was telling me that he wanted me to jump from one. But I didn't want to be rude. And so I hugged him and said, thank you. Over the next week, I'll admit I did my best to come up with an excuse for why I couldn't go. But I googled it online and realized, not only were these tickets expensive, but they weren't refundable. Oh, it's perfectly safe. People do it all the time. 
My wife told me when I explained my concern to her, I'm sure Trevor won't just have you going solo. You'll be fine, she added. I tried to push aside my doubts and worries to just have a good time, convincing myself this was a once-in-a-lifetime chance to really live a little. I kept checking the weather too, thinking maybe divine intervention would prevent me from going. One time, Trevor caught me doing it and reassured me. Don't worry, Dad. Pete said even if there is a little storm, he can fly us up high. It's gonna be fine. I smiled nervously. He had no idea how scared I was. The night before the skydive, I was in the bathroom either vomiting or, well, having my dinner come out the other end. Anyway, it was nerves and stress getting the better of me. My mind wouldn't calm down about something that was supposed to be fun. Finally, I just had to psych myself up to overcome that initial fear, and then took some pills for anxiety just in case. He picked me up that morning around 6am, right before the sun was rising. I finished getting dressed and I checked the sky, noting a few dark clouds to the west. No need to worry, Dad. That's headed the other way, out of the area, he said as we climbed into his Jeep Cherokee. The airfield was only about a 20-minute drive from my house and the whole way, I had to give myself another motivational talk in my head. Dad, you look like you saw a ghost, Trevor teased. Sorry, would you believe your old man is actually scared to death about this? I said with a half smile. He gave me the stink eye. For the past few years, you've been constantly talking about doing something like this. Don't get cold feet now, he told me. I nodded and apologized as our instructor showed up, waving excitedly at us both. Hey, howdy, Trevor. Bruce. Glad you both can make it. Perfect day for diving if I do say so myself, he said, walking straight over to the open hangar bay. There weren't many planes available, but it was easy to guess that the larger cargo vessel was going to be our means to get up into the cloud since it had wide doors on the side. I'm going to do a pre-flight check and you two, you just sit tight, Pete told us with a wink. I swallowed a gulp of air and Trevor tapped his foot impatiently. Somewhere off in the distance, I heard the rumble of thunder and I reached to check my phone. Oh, and yeah, I guess I should have mentioned this. No electronic devices should be used during the flight or the jump. People usually drop them by accident, and then it's bye-bye smartphone. So, just drop them over here before we take off. Pete said, pointing to a nearby basket. Trevor complied immediately, and I checked the weather again, just to be sure that the storm really was moving away. Then again, I thought to myself... I doubted Pete would even come out here if he thought there was a safety risk. Hey, looks like we're good to go, Pete asked as he climbed on board and started up the instruments for the control panel. The propeller started to spin and Pete explained what was going to happen next. Once I get this old engine revved up, we'll be going to about 13,000 feet in the next 19 minutes. In the meantime, I'm going to go over a bit of basic parachute safety he shouted over the roar of the engine. And Trevor and I both did our best to listen as he piloted us higher and higher. 
The altitude and the velocity that we were traveling at was enough to make my stomach do some tricks. It was making it difficult to focus on what he was telling us. And then as we broke through the first layer of clouds, Pete got silent as he looked toward the open sky. Something wrong? I asked. He had just been explaining how to put on the safety vest when he got dead quiet and remarked, Just kinda weird. Looks like we got a storm cell in the area. I'll try to fly us a little more south. I looked out the window next to my seat to get a good look at the patch of clouds that had him concerned, realizing that I'd never seen a storm from this angle. Above the clouds, watching moisture gently rise and swirl and form a cluster was both beautiful and astonishing. I'm not an expert on this, but it did seem to move a lot faster than I thought a normal patch of clouds would. Is that... is that storm following us? I asked hesitantly. Saying it out loud sounded bizarre. I was being irrational, I told myself. But neither Trevor or Pete said a word as we flew toward the lower atmosphere to prepare for the jump. We'll need to dive a little early just to be safe, Pete told us as he repeated some of the instructions for the parachute. And then we heard a loud crack of thunder and the plane itself shook. Um, maybe we should just turn back, my son remarked. I felt like I was going to throw up after that last tumble in the air, but I told myself that I could make it. No, let's do this. I'll be okay, I reassured him. P got us to a steady altitude and checked the cloud cover. For a moment, everything looked clear. This is as good a spot as any, he told us. And then we saw that same dark storm cell push through the cloud cover, swirling like a hive of bees towards us and I felt my heart drop. It seemed like the cloud was observing us the way a stalking predator would. Then, before I could even ask my son what he thought, a long streak of lightning ripped across the sky and smashed into the cockpit of the plane. Holy crap, Pete said, grabbing a hold of the controls to keep us level. What was that? I asked. Pete jerked the controls of the small aircraft up, forcing me to grab a hold of my seat as I felt my launch go to the bottom of my stomach. And then he whirled back around and went northwest, shouting, We've got something on our tails. I don't know what, but it's nasty. Trevor and I looked toward the way that we had come, both of us speechless with panic, as we saw these strange large massive clouds that pushed towards us. The predator was on the hunt. Do you have your parachute ready? Pete shouted. Another bolt of lightning struck the right wing, smashing apart a third of the plating as he struggled to stay airborne. You need to jump now. Pete insisted. I looked to Trevor for a confirmation, as more of the strange energy rocketed toward our tiny craft, and the plane started to experience a power failure. Come on, Dad, he shouted as he opened the doors and stared down at the seemingly infinite gap between us and the ground. Dive! Go! Pete insisted as the black storm cloud was about to swarm us all. Trevor leapt first his body immediately getting caught in the winds of the clouds and falling away from the plane to the east. I held on to the side of the plane, my pulse racing as I looked to Pete. 
He opened his mouth to give me another command but never got the chance. Another large bolt of lightning pierced the cockpit and ripped him from his seat, his screams echoing across the expanse for miles as I put one foot on edge toward the jump. It was now or never. I closed my eyes and plummeted. Immediately, it felt like all the oxygen had left my lungs as I fell and tumbled end over end from the plane. In one flash of my view, I saw the black cloud swarm our ship, tearing it apart the way termites would. It couldn't possibly be just another storm cell, I thought to myself. This was a breathing organism, commanding the elements to consume us as food. And then I was hurtling towards the ground, my entire life flashing before my eyes, as I searched the wide sky for any sign of Trevor. I saw him, arms outstretched about five yards away, using the specialized suit that he was wearing to ride the air down and encouraging me to do the same. I was trying not to think about what had just happened to Pete and try to focus on everything that we would need to do to make it to the ground and survive. Don't pull the parachutes until I tell you when, Trevor shouted above the roar of the wind. My brain was still trying to catch up with the decision to even jump from the plane. When I heard a loud explosion above and Trevor said, Don't look up. The wind was hitting me as my body got closer and closer to the point of no return. And then the drowning noise of the rushing air was overwhelmed by the sound of the storm. Now dad, do it now. My son shouted as he reached for his pole string and got ready for the launch of the parachute. And then these swarm of dark clouds were already on top of him as he hit the pole cord and his body shot upward. I looked up, watching as Trevor disappeared from my sight and holding on to the hope that he was fine. And then the screams came. I couldn't even imagine what was happening to my son as I heard his bones break and his cries for help get louder and louder. I knew if I pulled onto the cord now, that I would be caught in the maw of the bizarre creature too, so I hesitated for one more moment before I yanked on the release. It felt like I was flying for a moment, the sudden exhilaration of moving downward stopped by the chute opening as I drifted and swayed toward the south. I caught a glimpse of the strange black cloud that had devoured Pete and my son and saw that it was about to start following me. I panicked and tugged my body toward the tree line, hoping to hide in the canopy and let the monster get tired of searching for me. My parachute snagged on the top of the trees, and I was thrown about like a puppet dangling from string. Above me, I watched the dark cloud of life fly over top the trees, perhaps trying to find its next meal, and then it disappeared up through the cloud cover and out of sight. I'm not really sure how long I was stranded there. It felt like days. I was too terrified to move and too numb with pain from the shocking fall to consider climbing down. With no cell phone to call for help, I was stuck there for the next few hours until some local campers caught sight of me dangling and they helped me down. They offered me warm food and something to drink as I asked for a phone to call my wife. It didn't really hit me that Trevor was gone until I had to tell her. 
Tears that burst out of my eyes as I passed the phone back. I just simply couldn't stop sobbing from the ordeal that I had gone through. The campers took me to a nearby emergency center to get checked for injuries, and authorities promised that they would find Trevor's body wherever it fell. I didn't bother telling them that they wouldn't find it. I knew the sound I heard was like a python crushing its food. My son was gone. Something in the sky had killed him. It's been about a week now since it happened and my family is still recovering from the loss. But none of them know what really happened. All they think I'm experiencing now is just stress and trauma from the event, which is probably partially true. But I can't look up at the sky again and feel safe anymore. I can't hold back the truth much longer, even though I know they'll call me insane. But they need to know. Everyone does. Something unholy and evil is up there in the clouds, waiting to kill us all. Today's episode is sponsored by Wondery Generation Y. If you're hungry for more spooky podcast content, oh boy, do I have the hookup for you today. I would highly suggest giving the Generation Y podcast a shot. Hosts Aaron and Justin give startling theories, dive into forensic evidence, and share their bold opinions. Imagine you have two friends who are obsessed with stories of crime, murder, mayhem, and unsolved mysteries. They have a passion for breaking down cases that have been cold for years, and it's an awesome listen. In an all-new episode, Generation Y breaks down the case of Jonathan Amoral, a 25-year-old hiking enthusiast and biomedical engineer in Jaffrey, New Hampshire, who went missing after a weekend of hiking. He was rumored to have been seeing a co-worker, 31-year-old Brittany Barron, who was married with children. After Amaral failed to show up for work, his mother reported him missing, and police later discovered that Barron had called in earlier that day to quit her job, and had also gone missing. Did the two run off together, or had something more sinister happened? You won't believe how this shocking story ends. And that's just a taste of some of the amazing cold cases and true crime that gets discussed in detail over on the Generation Y podcast. It's quickly becoming one of my favorite listens and I can't recommend them enough. Be sure to listen to the Generation Y podcast on Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts. Or you can listen one week early and ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. If you hear bells ringing in the forest, run. Written by Certain Emergency 122. This is a terrible idea, my girlfriend said. I waved expansively at the stretch of trees nearby, communing with nature, exploring, detoxing from technology. What could go wrong? She squinted at me, her brown eyes narrowed. If this is supposed to be a digital detox, shouldn't we stop the Zoom meeting? No way, I shook my head. I want to enjoy time with you while I can. A three-hour time difference might not seem like much, but when it's your first ever long-distance relationship, 
everything is harder than you expect. Gabriella and I had grown up together, but had only started dating in the past six months. Six months was long enough that we had outlasted all of our other friends' relationships. But I constantly worried that someone would meet her, realize how amazing she was, and steal her away. She was nearly six feet tall, with beautiful, dark brown eyes and black hair. Meanwhile, I was short and plain. We had never been this far apart for this long. Trust me, it hadn't been my idea to pack up and move across the country. In fact, I had had no say in it at all. The second dad told me that he got the job offer in Maine. I knew things would change and not in my favor. And I was right. One moment, I was hanging out with Gabriella at the beach, holding her hand in mine. The next, forcibly transplanted all by myself into a cold, dreary house surrounded by a huge freaking forest. Okay, technically, not all by myself, because Dad was here too. But still. Being a teenager sucks, and it sucks even more when your dad decides that his version of a midlife crisis is embracing his latent hippie tendencies and dropping everything to live in the woods. I thought of my mom then, and had a sharp pang of missing her. If she was still alive, dad wouldn't have wanted to move. It had been two years since that drunk driver had ruined our lives and his. Two years, but it felt like she had died just yesterday. I would think that I was okay, and then something would remind me of her, and I would miss her all over again. To distract myself from my thoughts, I pointed at a suspicious-looking bush. Is that a patch of poison ivy? Gabriella rolled her eyes. I could tell that even though our call lagged slightly, leaving our audio out of sync within our mouths. Not everything is poison ivy. Hey, not everyone is a Girl Scout, an Eagle Scout, whatever you were. Henry David Thoreau, I was not. Unlike Gabriella, I'd be happy to stay indoors with a bag of popcorn and a good Netflix show for the rest of my life. I never understood the appeal of camping, or even hiking. No plumbing, poison ivy, mosquitoes, gnats, and bears. No thanks. And ticks. I frowned at her. What are ticks? They're parasitic bugs that feed on blood, and they can give you Lyme disease. Uh, I promptly made the decision to never go outside ever again. Alright, I'm out. Do you want to stay up late and watch the ritual together? Gabriella said something, but the zoom call glitched momentarily, freezing her face into a pixelated blur. I tried waving my phone around as if that would help. Babe, you're breaking up, I can't hear you. I was about to say more when I heard it. The sound of bells. I stopped waving my phone to listen because the sound was weirdly entrancing. It started off as a delicate chiming. The kind of bells you would expect to hang over the door to an old lady's tea shop or something. And then the sound changed. It got deeper and louder. So loud that I could feel it vibrating through my whole body. And it seemed as though now I couldn't move. Not just that I didn't want to. 
Now, Gabriella's voice broke me out of my trance, despite how chopped and garbled it was. Melody, I had dropped my phone to the floor when I clapped my hands over my ears. I didn't remember even doing that, but now I leaned down to grab it. There was a huge crack across the screen that split Gabriella's face in half, rendering it into something strange and unknown. Abruptly, the call ended. Panic and fear crashed over me. I was suddenly horribly, dreadfully afraid. But why? The sound of the bells had changed again. They didn't sound like sweet, unearthly music anymore, but like the sound of an animal in pain. I waited for the ringing to end, but instead it grew louder, until it was a bestial roar. The ground began to shake under my feet, sending me stumbling. It was like the earth itself was screaming. I blundered away from the sound of the bells, running away without knowing where I was going. All they knew was that I needed to get away. My past countless trees that all looked the same to me. I jumped over fallen logs and ducked under low branches. At one point, I tripped and landed on my hands and knees, only to scramble back up without a pause. I ran until there was a stitch in my side and I could barely breathe. Finally, my body forced me to stop. I looked around myself as I gasped for breath. Crap. It didn't look anywhere familiar, and there was something different about my surroundings. A subtle difference that I couldn't put my finger on, like asking someone to puzzle out like one of those optical illusions, where you could see both a vase and two faces at the same time. The trees were wrong, but I didn't know why. I pulled out my phone. It was at 42% battery, but there was a no signal. Of course. How worse could my luck get? I pulled up a text message and prepared to send it to 911. I read somewhere that you could text them and it would go through when there is a signal again. My fingers were actually hovering over the send button when I paused, uncertain. What the heck had happened just now? What had happened was some idiot in the woods, thinking that he was by himself, decided to blast some weird YouTube video. Stupidly, I got spooked. I tried to articulate to myself why the sound had become so scary, but I couldn't. I felt increasingly like an idiot. I thought back to the ground shaking under my feet. It had to have been an earthquake, right? I was so used to them growing up in California but the East Coast didn't get earthquakes. Maybe an occasional sinkhole. I looked around myself, but the trees all looked the same to me, no matter how different I sensed them to be. There was something about moss on trees, right? That it pointed north, and you were supposed to follow a stream towards upwards or downwards of the way that it flowed. I wasn't a wilderness expert. I couldn't go wandering around. I had to stay put. My face burned in embarrassment as I imagined the look on my dad's when he heard about this. My parents had always been so proud of my ability to be self-sufficient, to be practical and calm. I looked down on my phone, preparing to seal my shame by sending that text message, but the screen had turned entirely black. 
Six words glowed in scarlet red, centered in all that darkness so that they jumped out at me. They hunt at night. Keep running. I can't, I whispered. All that fear that had seemed too stupid and irrational a moment ago was back. My stomach rolled uneasily, and I had to sit down or fall down because my knees could no longer hold me. I chose to sit, cradling the phone in my hands and unable to tear my attention away from it, like I expected the words to change before my eyes. And I passed out. When I woke up, it was cold and dark. For one brief second, I thought that I was safe at home, and only cold because I had kicked my blanket off my bed. That peace didn't last. I remembered that I was alone and lost in a creepy forest. Hooray. I knew that I shouldn't move around when in the dark. I was likely to get myself more lost instead of less. But I couldn't stay still either. It's hard to explain, unless you've experienced it yourself. Have you ever felt the darkness oppress on your skin like a physical presence? Felt an itch between your shoulder blades from the weight of countless eyes watching you? As illogical as it was, I had to move. Staying still in the dark was to give up and die, or to go insane. But I understood now the legend of Prometheus, why he had pitied humans and risked everything to steal fire for us. It wasn't just food that fire gave us, but light. Light to chase away the shadows, to show you what was really there. I didn't have fire, but I did have a flashlight function on my phone. It worked, even though the light was weak and barely there, and even though my screen was still entirely black. Was it possible that I'd hallucinated those words? I kept moving forward, unable to see anything past the beam of my flashlight. I don't know how long I stumbled through the darkness, only that at some point I realized that the darkness had lightened somewhat. And then I saw that there were less trees around me, and I didn't need my flashlight anymore. I clicked it off, looking up into the sky. Three moons hung there, full and silver. I blinked, rubbed my eyes, and shook my head. But there were still three moons. And the more that I stared at them, the more they seemed like the blank eyes of some giant dead creature, staring back at me. I have a head injury, I thought. Maybe that's why I passed out for so long, too. Was having brain damage better or worse than a psychotic break? I didn't know. I began to leave the cover of the tree, to cross what I was pretty sure was a clearing, but the sounds of bells ringing came again. Some inner instinct, one that had slumbered while the dream of civilization wrapped itself around me in a cocoon, told me not to move. So I held myself still and stared at the clearing, parts of which were illuminated by beams of that strange silver moonlight. A door opened in the middle of the clearing. For a confused moment, I thought maybe there was a house there, that the white door made of gleaming bones was connected to something larger. And then they came pouring out of that door, pouring out of the darkness. Their skin glowed in the darkness, white and corpse pale. Some of them scuttled forward on two legs, 
others on three or five or eight. I couldn't make out their faces in the darkness, and for that, I was glad. What little I could see was awful enough. At first, I thought once more that there was a house in the clearing, and that there were Christmas lights strung all around it. But no, it was their eyes. No human had eyes like that. Their eyes glowed red, green, red, green, yellow. I could see groups of them clustered together like the eyes of some giant spider. When I dropped my gaze down to these shadows that they cast, I saw that some of their lower faces writhed, like the mandibles of a praying mantis. Others had strange, limb-like appendages on their faces that cast shadows on the ground that waved and curled. I knew that I should move, but I didn't want to draw the attention of these things. When I looked at them, their faces shrouded in the darkness but gleaming with malevolence. I didn't think aliens. I thought monsters and that felt right. They were the nightmares of nightmares. So I stayed still and tried to figure out how to move backwards silently when they were probably countless twigs hiding behind me ready to be loudly snapped by a careless hand or foot. The monsters began to cross the clearing. I realized with another flash jolt of terror that they moved in my direction. I couldn't just stay still. I glanced around helplessly, wondering if I could somewhere hide nearby. I don't know what I would have done, run or hide because just then, they all stopped as one. And the first monster... The one in front of all the others called out, Come out, come out, wherever you're hiding, Mitt said. I had expected their voices to match the horror of their appearance. I expected a harsh and guttural voice, or maybe an alien chittering, like the insects some of them resembled. But instead, its voice rang out like the sweet sound of wind chimes. We won't hurt you, not unless you make us search for you. It seemed impossible that it, that they, knew I was there, but what if they could see in the dark? Or what if they had an incredible sense of smell? I took quick, shallow breaths, breathing carefully out of my mouth to minimize the sound of my breathing. Yet at the same time, it had an almost irresistible urge to stand up. It was like the feeling you get sometimes, when you're standing at the edge of a cliff or bridge and you think about jumping. I wanted this to be over. The terror that I felt waiting for them to find me was greater than the terror I felt at what they would do to me. And as little sense as it made, part of me trusted their words, that they wouldn't hurt me unless I made them hurt me. For some reason I couldn't explain... I looked down at my phone then. There were words again, glowing out of the darkness. Stay still. And I stayed still. And eventually, something else moved. Someone else. He, she, or they, I couldn't tell. Stood up out of the bushes that weren't even 20 or 30 feet from where I hid. They stumbled toward the creatures in the clearing and I caught a brief glimpse of the expression on his face, because I could tell that it was a him then. Agonized terror. 
If I had known what they were going to do to him, I would have run. Even if they had heard me, maybe they would have been so busy with him that they wouldn't have bothered to chase me. There are always other knights to hunt, but I didn't know. Couldn't have known what they would do to him, so I stayed and watched. He reached the first thing in the clearing, the one standing up in front of the others and who had spoken. He dropped to his knees and trembled, saying nothing. The creature reached out. I couldn't see exactly what they were doing to him, but he began to scream, high, piercing shrieks. If I hadn't seen his face and known that he was a man, I would have thought it was a girl screaming. I huddled with my arms circling my knees in a small ball as I could manage. I locked my jaw against the scream that was clawing its way out of my chest. My heart pounded like it was going to burst out of me and run, steaming into the night. A thick spray of red, black in the moonlight, splashed across the clearing. The figure staggered, toppling backwards. I had time to notice that he looked strangely lopsided, unbalanced. And then the creatures all moved in around him, blocking him from my view. But still, he screamed and screamed. I don't know how long he screamed for, only that by the end of it, his voice had turned into hoarse barks. And under the sound of that, slurping sounds from the clearing, from the things around him. Please leave, I thought. I prayed. Please go away. I stayed curled up in a ball, my entire body sore and aching from the position. I was so cold, cold like I had never felt. But I didn't move, and I couldn't. I stayed that way, my eyes straining to make up perverse, twisted shapes in the darkness, until eventually, I heard a wet tearing sound and these screams ended. I heard laughter like silver bells, church bells echo across the clearing, and then nothing. Eventually dawn spread its fingers across the sky, and I saw that the clearing was empty, well almost empty. I hadn't heard or seen them leave, and somehow, that was even more terrifying. I tried to look around myself to get up at the same time, but I fell over, stiff muscles refusing to cooperate. There was nothing, no one behind me. I limped around in a circle, trying to stretch out my muscles. After a while, I moved towards the clearing. I didn't want to see, and I wanted to see at the same time. There was a tiny part of me that still couldn't believe what had happened. Surely, said that part of me, surely it couldn't have been as bad as what you thought it was. When I saw him, I didn't know at first what I was looking at, because it wasn't human. It was a pile of meat decorated with glistening organs. Ropes of it spilled out of that pile, and I saw that it soaked the grass below in a deep red. It was still wet and fresh, and the metallic smell of it clung to me. I kept trying to make it make sense, but there was nothing that I could make sense of. Nothing of it that resembled a human, or even limbs or hands or feet. Those things had reduced him to nothing. I threw up right beside him, unable to stop myself. 
The thought that I was desecrating what remained of him just made me throw up even more. It wasn't until I had thrown up everything my stomach held that I was able to get up. I walked away calmly. I could still see that pile of flesh every time I closed my eyes, but I kept going. My throat burned, both from throwing up and from thirst. The fear had made me forget how thirsty and hungry I was, but now it was back. Everywhere that I turned, the trees looked the same as each other, and I couldn't hear the sound of running water anywhere. I suddenly knew with a bone-deep certainty that I was going to die. If the things from last night didn't get me, then dehydration would. I was only 16, too young to go, but I was going to. I thought of my dad and told myself not to cry. That that would just make my dehydration worse, and I cried anyway. I couldn't stop myself. I sank against the nearest tree and sobbed so hard that I tasted that coppery taste in my throat. My phone buzzed in my hand. I looked at it on instinct, and even through the tears, I saw the words. Stream on right. Keep going. I tried to type something in response, but there was no keyboard under my fingers. Nothing that I could press. I held the power button down, cursing myself for not thinking of that sooner. But that didn't work either. The frustration mounted and I thought very seriously about throwing the phone into the woods. But instead, I held the phone close to my face, as if I was going to talk to someone. Who are you? What is going on? I looked down at my phone and saw that the words had changed. I guess I should have been scared or worried, but I was so exhausted that I didn't feel anything at all. When reality thins, doors open. How do I get out of here? The words didn't change, so I tried again. What were those things? They hunt. Yeah, I got that. I heaved in one shaky breath after another. How do I... How do I get away from them? The sound of bells will warn you. Okay, okay, I laughed. And even through my exhaustion, I could hear the edge of hysteria in it. It sounded like the laugh of someone unhinged. So I stopped. How do I get out of here? When reality thins, doors open. I did throw my phone then. It bounced off a tree and shot into the woods. And then I heard the sound of my phone ringing and I ran towards it. Dropping down on my hands and knees. Desperately shuffling through the leaves until my hand touched a cold metal. Hope burned inside of my chest like glowing embers. Hello? Hello? I practically screamed the words, and my throat reminded me anew of how much it hurt. There was a loud burst of static, and I held it away from myself, wincing. Melody. It was a woman's voice, one that I knew well. I knew they dropped my phone. Mom? I whispered. It couldn't have been her. She was dead. She was dead. Melody. You have to. A burst of static. Find the door. Please, help me, Mom. I was crying again so hard that I almost couldn't speak. I need help. Door. And then the call ended. I stared at the phone waiting, but there was nothing else. 
No words, no phone call. Had that really been my mom? It sounded like her, but I knew she was gone. She had died two years ago. So much ground meat from the car crash. I got up. The phone clenched in my left hand so tightly that my fingers were numb. And then I began walking. To the right, to where these dreams supposedly was. What else could I do? I'm so scared. I think I'm safe for now. I think I have until these sunsets again. They hunt a night after all, but what do I do then? For how long can I run or hide? I don't know if you'll see this. I don't know if any of this is getting through. But if you do, please send help. My name is Melody and I'm trapped in the great north woods in Maine. I know my dad will be looking for me. Please let him know that I'm okay. At least for right now. And whatever you do, if you hear bells ringing in the forest, run. I accidentally started a zombie apocalypse written by Dretchenox. It all started when my dog passed away. Let's call him George. George had been my best buddy ever since I had been 12. And as you can imagine, his passing left a deep hole in my heart. Even bigger than the one that I had dug out in my backyard to bury him. However, as people say, I was sure that one day that I would move on from it. It was just that this process was taking far longer than I had thought. I still found it hard to get up in the morning, and I still found it hard to believe that I would never hear George's footsteps as he bounded into the house. I used to hate how he would always make a mess walking in, but now... I wanted nothing more than for him to walk in and tear the furniture to pieces just one more time. In my grief, my sleeping pattern was pretty messed up. I ended up taking a nap afternoon that lasted a while into the evening, and as you can imagine, I didn't really feel like sleeping later on at night. I decided that maybe deciding to take a walk would clear my mind a little. I didn't want to be in my house as it brought back memories of George. George and I would usually go and take a walk in the nearby park, so I went on another route. This one ended up leading through the cemetery, which was a bit unnerving but I didn't want to turn back at that point. It was during this walk that I saw something I wasn't expecting. A large group of people gathered around in a circle off in the distance. At first, I thought that it might be the local parent-teacher association meeting coming together. Though now that I look back on what I saw, that seems highly unlikely. After all, all of these people, they were wearing strange black cloaks. 
and they had this weird ornament around their necks. They were wearing masks. Nothing weird about that in these times, but these completely hid their entire faces. They were also holding knives, and one of them was tied up. And not to mention, why would the PTA meet outside of the school? That too, in a cemetery near midnight. Yeah, they probably were not the PTA, but I hadn't pieced that out at the time. So, I decided to walk up to them and say hello, thinking that some conversation might take my mind off of things. One of them saw me approach and they screamed, We've been found! Run! All at once, the gathered people scrambled away in random directions, even taking the man who had been tied up with them. I was rather upset, as you can understand that these people were avoiding me. How rude do you have to be to wait to run away right when you see someone? Anyway, I noticed something on the ground. It appeared that these people had dropped something in their hurry to get away from me. It was a rather thick book with a title written in a language whose letters I didn't recognize, so I assumed that it might have been in French. I had taken Spanish in school, you see, so I had no knowledge of French. Now, these people, they might have been rude to me, but I figured that I should still return the book back to them. The only thing was, I didn't know who any of those people were, and the book didn't have an owner mentioned on the cover. While it is definitely not a nice thing to go through someone else's belongings, this could have been someone's diary for all I knew after all. I did want to return it to its owner, and I had no clue as to who that was. And so I began reading it. The text inside was also in that strange language, but someone had scribbled out what I guessed were translations in English. The handwriting even seemed a little familiar, but I chose to ignore it at the moment, as my attention got to a page about something called necromancy. Apparently, it was possible to bring back to life someone or something as a zombie. It immediately piqued my interest, as it meant that I might be able to see George again. I decided that I could hold back on giving the book back. I wanted to see if it was possible to bring back my dog first. I was sure that whoever owned the book didn't need it back urgently or anything. Of course, I wanted to be sure about what I was doing first. I called my local veterinarian's office the next morning to ask about his medical opinion on bringing back an animal with dark magic, but I was swiftly disconnected. Sadly, major health organizations didn't have any information on this, so I just decided to go ahead with it. Now, 
The whole thing required some ingredients which I couldn't exactly find on Amazon or even eBay. So it took some time to gather them all together. When I was done and the next new moon had rolled around, I stood outside over George's grave and read out the incantation written in the book. After I had placed the regents over the grave, at first nothing happened, so I was kind of disappointed. But then I heard something. It sounded like muffled scratching beneath the earth. I began clearing it off and eventually came upon a wriggling paw. A while later, and I had unearthed George. He was a bit decomposed, but surprisingly, he didn't smell at all. He barked happily as he saw me, and I saw recognition in his eyes. I mean, yeah, there were a couple of issues. For one, George seemed to reject everything that I wanted to feed him. He was undead after all, so I wasn't sure if this was an issue. Secondly, he was a lot more aggressive, at times even trying to bite my head. He never succeeded though. But I just thought this aggression was the side effect of having been buried for so long. After all, I think I would be a bit cranky too if I was buried underground for a few weeks. I decided to ignore these small flaws and instead spend as much time as I wanted with George. I can't describe to you how amazing it was to finally be with him after having lost him. It felt as if I was whole again. Aside from a few violent outbursts, he was just as playful as he had always been. While it was nice playing around with George, I remembered the book and the fact that I was supposed to return it. See, I had said that I sort of recognized the handwriting. I thought it belonged to my neighbor, who I'll call John here. And so, I showed up at his house holding the book. Here, John, I think you might have dropped this, I said. Immediately, his face turned to one of shock, and he vehemently denied owning it. But this is your handwriting, right? I pointed out. He said no. It must be some mistake, and that I should just take that book away and leave. The whole time, he kept looking around frantically, as if afraid that someone might be watching us. Alright, if you don't want it. I then paused. But I should thank you for this. I mean, I managed to get my dog back thanks to this. His eyes widened as I explained what I had done, and he began to freak out even more, asking to see my lovable dog, George. I complied and after all, John had played with George before. I took John to visit George and John began to freak out for some odd reason. I thought that he would have been happy to see George again. 
but he didn't share my joy at having my pet back. I think this is what set George off because he's normally such a friendly dog. But he went ahead and he bit John on the leg. It was a shallow bite, and I offered to wash it for him with some soap and water before driving him to get a rabies shot. But John, for some reason, just sprinted away at that point, and I had to hold George back to prevent him from attacking John any further. I got that John was kind of rude to George, but still, I didn't want my dog to hurt John any more than he already had. The next day, I got a call from John's number, but it was from his wife. Let's call her Jane. She had told me how John had been acting weird ever since. He had come over with me to see George, and she was asking if he had taken drugs or something. I asked her what he was doing so weird, and she said that his skin was now grayer and that he had bitten her last night in bed. I told her that I thought that was kind of hot and not what I would be comfortable with. But if it was what the two of them wanted to do, I had no real business at judging them for it. For some reason, she got frustrated when I said this and she hung up the phone on me. Things have gotten progressively weirder over the week since then, guys. My town has been put into lockdown for the past three days. I thought it had to do with what was going on in the world but it seems to be something different entirely. People have been whispering about zombies, but they have hushed up now that the military has been involved and it has stationed troops here. I hear gunshots occasionally throughout the day, and so I had to move George inside since he gets agitated easily by loud noises. I won't lie, I'm getting kind of scared now. I haven't heard from John or Jane for a couple of days, and they aren't picking up their phone. I can't help but feel that somehow, I might be responsible for all that's happening. But hey, even if there's a zombie apocalypse, all zombies can't be bad, right? I mean, George is one, and he seems to be fine for the most part. I really hope the military doesn't feel like they have to take George away. That's what scares me the most. I can't stand losing him for a second time. What do you guys think I should do? Please, answer quickly. I think that they might cut off our internet, and I would like some advice before they do. Before we get into the next story, I just wanted to take a minute to talk about one of today's sponsors, Shudder. Summer is over and there's a chill in the air. Spooky season has arrived, so let's watch some scary movies. There's no better place for horror than Shudder, which has kicked off its annual 61 Days of Halloween, a two-month supersized celebration full of new movies and series, like a new season of Creepshow and VHS-94, the brand new installment in the acclaimed found footage anthology franchise. 
and that's just the start of Shudder's unbeatable Halloween lineup. There are new specials from Elvira and Joe Bob Briggs, a new season of the Boulet Brothers, Dragula, their new docuseries, Behind the Monsters, on the origins and pop culture dominance of your favorite modern movie monsters, and so much more. If you didn't know, Shudder is basically the Netflix of horror. It allows you to stream great thrillers, horror, and suspense for only $5.99 a month or $56.99 a year. Shudder has the largest and fastest growing curated selection of thrilling and dangerous entertainment. And I have to say, I'm hooked. I just got done watching Carrie before recording this to put me in the spooky mood. You know, nothing beats those Stephen King classics. And that's another thing that I love about Shudder. It has it all. From timeless classics to modern releases and everything in between. The variety keeps me coming back for more. To try Shudder free for 30 days, go to Shudder.com and use promo code MrCreeps. That's S-H-U-D-D-R dot com and use promo code MrCreeps. I'm a private investigator in rural Oregon. Written by Sniper6407 In 2016, despite how cliche it sounds, I was working as a private investigator in rural Oregon. Most people make the stereotype that private detectives and investigators have walk-in clients, but that simply isn't true. I get almost all of my cases from clients by phone, and the call that I got in June was no exception. The client, a man named Jonathan Alexander, was calling about the disappearance of his father, Sergio Alexander. Jonathan's father had gone missing ever since a solo deer hunting trip in the backwoods of our little Oregon town, and the search parties and official parties hadn't turned up anything. In most cases like this, you're looking for a body in the woods, not a living person. But Jonathan was hopeful, so I gave him the benefit of the doubt. In this case, I took my go bag, a duffel bag, and its contents were a bottle of water, a first aid kit, my Taurus Raging Hunter, a bag of Ziploc bags, and my wallet and phone and food. A Taurus Raging Hunter revolver might have been overkill, but I was planning to go into the woods. And the woods can be a dangerous place. This part of Oregon was stocked full of cougars, mountain lions, bears, wolves, moose, and some others. And almost everyone carried a heavier firearm when going into the backwoods. The first place on my schedule was Jonathan's house, where I would meet him in person and have an interview. As I pulled up into his dirt driveway, I got a sense of the person that he was. His house was a 20-foot trailer stuck to the ground with a backyard and patio facing the mountains. Are you Jonathan? I asked the man waiting for me. He was tall, at least six foot five, and wearing a checkered button-up, a trucker cap, and jeans. Yeah, he replied. You're Inspector Jacob, right? Come inside, I'll tell you the details. I also have some things that could help you, depending on how willing you are. I walked inside the trailer, 
and the interior was everything that I expected. The walls were lined with taxidermied bass and catfish, as well as several mounted deer heads and rifles propped up on display. A dirty kitchen with piles of dishes in one corner and a small two-person table in the other. Jonathan, John for short, and I sat down. Jonathan offered me a beer, but I declined. I never drank on the job. I started with the regular questions. Well, where was he last seen? Who was with him? What happened leading up to the night of the disappearance? John replied, telling the whole story. My dad, Sergio, was a hunter and fisherman. Hunting and fishing were his life. He always had a rifle or a fishing rod. He's in his 60s and was in the military for seven years. Had a few tours in Afghanistan. On that night, he wanted to go solo buck hunting in the evening. So I dropped him off on a dirt road near his favorite spot. He didn't come back for two days. This was somewhat normal. He sometimes would hunt overnight or just got lost. But after a week passed, I got really worried. I could feel that something was wrong. I could feel it to my gut. I called the sheriff and they organized a search party for three nights. We went in every direction, covered all the ground, and you know what? Not a single thing. Not a candy bar, no footsteps leading past his spot. No trail, nothing. After he was declared deceased, I went on myself to search. I know that he's still out there. I know it. And where is this dirt road? John marked the road on the GPS on my phone and I thanked him and laughed. I had a no solve, no payroll, so I wouldn't get paid unless I found Sergio, dead or alive. My next stop was at the sheriff's office in the middle of my small town. I drove past multiple roadside stores until I reached the parking lot of the sheriff's office. I parked and walked into the place, going up to the front desk where a tall and skinny deputy was doing paperwork and chewing gum, presumably as a substitute for a cigarette. I told him that I was looking into the disappearance of Sergio Alexander, and he sent me to the sheriff's office. The sheriff, a balding man in his 50s named Clyde, showed a forced smile as I walked inside. A stained American flag was pinned to the wall, along with dozens of missing person posters and wanted posters. So, Inspector, is this missing guy a friend of yours? He asked. No, I replied. A client wants me to find him. Sergio is the guy's dad. Well, you're in luck, Clyde replied. We haven't gotten much criminal activity, so I can show you some of the search party reports. Clyde reached into his desk and pulled out a stack of papers and photos which I flicked through. One of the photos captured an image showing a trail of footprints ending abruptly. And what is this? I asked. It's the strangest part of the case. The footprints leading to Sergio's favorite hunting spot and just stopped. No trail leading somewhere else. No tire tracks, no ATV tracks, nothing. It's like he just up and vanished into thin air. I sighed. This case was going to be a hard one. What else of interest was there? I asked, looking through the files. Clyde pulled out a satellite image of the woods with a sharpie written on the spot where Sergio had gone missing. 
This is the entire area in which we estimate that Sergio could have walked around in the time that he was gone, Clyde stated. And we checked every bit of it. And guess what? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. But there was one thing we found of interest. Which is? I asked. Well, there is a pattern. Every time we checked a place, we heard Sergio's radio coming from somewhere. I raised an eyebrow, and Sheriff Clyde continued. But it was very, very faint. Could barely hear it. And another strange thing was when we went to search for Sergio, in the entire area that he went missing, all the birds and animals were quiet, even the crickets. As soon as we had left the area of the supposed disappearance, the sound all came back. I checked my watch. It was early evening. After jotting down all the notes that I could gather, I thanked the sheriff and I left. My next stop? The woods. By the time I pulled up to the dirt road in my pickup truck, it was well into getting dark. This wasn't the ideal time for me to search through the area and find clues. Every detective knows how important the first 45 hours are. The place was exactly as John had described it. It was extremely rural, just a few miles away from a mountain range, and it was completely silent. The forest should have been alive, with birds chirping, wild turkeys moving about, crickets chirping, but the night was dead. Turning on my headlamp, I found Sergio's footsteps from when he was last seen and started combing through the area. Just like Clyde and Jonathan had said, the trail abruptly stopped in the middle of the woods. Nothing. No other signs that Sergio was even there. It was as if he had just up and vanished. Suddenly, I heard some rustling behind me. It was fully dark by now and nobody should have been there beside me. The sound came again, except it was now in front of me, but just out of reach of my headlamp. Who's there? I yelled. Show yourself, I'm armed. For dramatization, I flicked the revolver holster from my Taurus on my belt. Suddenly, something tapped me right in the back. I didn't have time to pull out my gun, and considering that whoever was doing this was probably some drunk guy, I wouldn't need it. I turned into a Mike Tyson haymaker in the thing's direction, and ended up hitting a tree and nearly breaking my wrist. In the split second that I was proud of my Mike Tyson haymaker, I realized that I had punched a tree, and that my knuckles were actually bleeding. Whoever was behind me, if there was someone behind me, they were long gone. And that was when the laughing started. Actually, it was more like a cackling. A weird, crazy, and unnatural cackling. Whatever you would call it, it was unsettling anyway. I pulled out my revolver designed to drop bears and fired a deafening shot into the air. The laughing, everything stopped for a bit, and I almost let my guard down. And then I heard something whisper, just an inch away from my ear. It said, Leave this place. And the next thing I know, I hear the sound of a million running footsteps catching up to me, and I get the heck out of there. I ran right out of the woods, fast enough to outrun Usain Bolt. Adrenaline is one heck of a drug. 
I jumped in my pickup truck, turned the engine, and peeled out of there all in record time. Whatever was behind me was still chasing me behind the car. I looked into the rearview mirror to try to look at the thing, which was running at least 80 miles per hour to keep up with me, and I saw nothing. Well, it wasn't a conceptual nothing. It was nothing in the sense that it was nothing my brain could comprehend and understand. There was a huge, blurry shape running after me, dark as the night and fuzzy around the edges. It was as if somebody had taken a huge mass of static from an 80s TV, made it into some sort of creature, and put it on a dirt road at 9 o'clock to chase some poor private investigator. I turned the road, drove down the road until I reached town. The thing was obviously gone. I parked at a gas station parking lot and threw up once my body realized how much running I had done. The next day, I headed to a woman named Meredith's house. I had heard about her from when I was at the bar the night I saw the demon thing by some paranormal junkies who were interested in what I said. Meredith owned a tea and plant shop at the edge of town, having a shop based on the first floor of her house. She also knew a thing or two about paranormal entities, the occult, monsters, ghouls, and well, you get the gist. I pulled up into the driveway of her shop and knocked on the door. We're closed. Somebody, probably Meredith, yelled. I looked at the store hours taped on the front door. Today was a Friday, and according to her, probably outdated store hours chart. She was, as a matter of fact, open. You're open, so stop being lazy. I yelled right back. Meredith ground and opened the triple lock door. In person, she was a short Latina woman with long black hair and a purple beanie, and wearing a trench coat and jeans, which was not totally suspicious. What do you want? She snapped. What I want is to know what is in those woods. And lady, don't piss me off. I'm still hungover. You studied the paranormal and supernatural, or am I wrong? No, you're not wrong. And good, because yesterday, I got bullied and chased by some weird demon thing while looking for a missing man in his 60s. Meredith's face went pale. I taught myself how to learn and read expressions that people make. And by the looks of it, she knew exactly what I was talking about. Come in, come in. I might be able to help you. Like Jonathan's house, I was easily able to tell the interior of the house from the outside. There were plants everywhere, on the walls, growing in giant pots on the floor, as well as shelves stocked full of beakers and test tubes, and a few bags full of strange substances. I sat down on a worn-out couch while Meredith assessed my situation. First of all, who told you about me? She asked. Some British fellow named Ron, I said, but then again I was drunk, so it might have been a John or a Bob. How did you say this thing looked like? Big, dark, and blurry. I couldn't actually see it since I was at least 800 feet away. But it was running 80 miles per hour, whatever it was. Huge, it must have been over 20 feet big. Did you look at it directly? Meredith asked. I answered plainly. No. I looked at it through the rearview mirror though. And even then, I couldn't see it very well. Must be why you're alive. What was that? I asked. 
What you just described is what we in the business call Nagalakus. Nagalakus, I muttered. The heck is that? No one really knows, Meredith replied. He, she, whatever it is, is ancient. It's been in these woods for probably over a century, and no one knows where he came from. You said that you were looking for a missing guy, right? Well, the Nagalaku probably took him. It might eat him, might let him go, might keep him for eternity, I don't know. Then how do I kill this thing? I asked. I need to close this case. Well, you probably can't, Meredith said. But whatever you do, don't look directly at it, or your mind will literally melt at the unfathomable horror, and you will die. Do not look at it. Don't look at the demon thing, I said. Gotcha. Do you have, you know, any herbs or materials that will stop it from hurting me or doing anything? I do, actually. It's white ash, blessed by a shaman. If you sprinkle it over yourself or any weapons you have, it should be more effective against any supernatural being. Meredith stood up and walked toward a cabinet and pulled out a large Ziploc bag of white ash, which seemed to glow and vibrate, and she handed it to me. This ain't free, she said. It's a hundred dollars. I sighed and reached into my wallet and pulled out a hundred dollars in cash and handed it to Meredith in exchange for the white ash. Hey, Meredith called out as I packed up my stuff and headed for the door. Yeah, be careful. Like that was even possible. I got out of there and drove to the gas station where I planned to get my supplies for the hunt to find Sergio Alexander. But before that, I needed to fuel up. I bought incendiary rounds for my revolver that the gas station surprisingly sold, and I ordered a pineapple pizza while listening to Piano Man by Billy Joel. After I finished up and threw out my garbage, I had devised a plan, which involved flares, a bottle of vodka, a huge jug filled with gasoline, and a Molotov cocktail. The cashier, a guy named John, seemed very interested in the thing that I bought from the gas station. He was a tall guy in his 50s, with a graying beard, a trucker cap, and a military attitude. What are all these things for? He asked, as I heaved the heavy gasoline tank onto the counter, along with some other flammable and extremely dangerous things. Oh, nothing, I answered. Try not to sound suspicious. Just trying to take care of a best problem. But John didn't see that as nothing. You're going into the woods, ain't ya? I was caught off guard by how easily and accurately he knew what I was doing. Yes, I replied. Well, I'm off work after the shift, so I'll come with you. Or I could just report to the police that a private investigator is buying suspicious amounts of flammables and gasoline, along with a 45 Magnum incendiary rounds for a Taurus Raging Hunter revolver. You are me? I asked. Yeah, he replied. Been in the Marines and the Navy for a couple of years. Had five tours in Afghanistan. I didn't see any reason why John shouldn't come with me. And besides, I could use his military and combat skills which might be useful and I wasn't going to carry a 55-gallon tank full of gasoline in the middle of the woods alone. Fine, I said. 
Let's do this. A few hours later, just as the sun was setting, John and I got out of my pickup truck in front of the woods. John had brought his trusty 12 gauge packed with dragon's breath rounds and a mini flamethrower. John would be my backup and the bait, while I carried the gasoline tank duct taped to an explosive Molotov cocktail. The plan was, we'd go to the woods, to the spot where I had last been attacked by the Sagoth and wait. Once we had heard a sign of Emma, we would both put on our blindfolds to avoid having our souls sucked out by the unfathomable sight of the eldritch cosmic horror. You ready? John asked. Yeah, I said. Just don't shoot me while you have your blindfold on. We walked into the woods in silence and after a mile or so, I reached the spot where Sergio was last seen. We sat there and waited an hour or so until all the noise suddenly stopped, and I heard the sound of something massive dragging across the forest floor. Put on your blindfold, I said, putting on mine. We can't risk seeing this thing. John nodded, grinned, and put the blindfold on. Whatever it was, it sounded massive. It said, in a demonic and ancient voice, Leave this place. John and I fired a shot into the direction of the voice, and although my bullet missed by a mile, the old man's shot was a direct hit. Although I couldn't hear it, I saw the light from the blast of fire, the sparks and flames coming from the barrel of John's shotgun, and it hit the demon monster. The thing screeched and we moved back a few steps, still blind. And without warning, the ground opened up beneath us. What the? John and I fell into the cavern beneath us, six feet down. You okay? I asked. Never been better, John replied. Where are we? I lifted my blindfold and looked around, to see that we had fallen into a subterranean tunnel that led deeper into the earth. Anyone there? Please help! A voice screamed, presumably Sergio's based on these circumstances. We ran down the tunnel and searched for Sergio, and we found the man, lying on the cave floor with a broken leg. We're gonna get you out of here, I said. But I could hear a screech come from the entrance to the tunnel, as the monster crawled down, breaking the walls. I reached down and picked up the tank of gasoline, had my eyes closed and waited until the monster was just close enough, my heart beating. Get out! I lit the Molotov, yelled at John to take cover, just as the beast got within a dozen meters in our range. I had previously sprinkled the white ash Meredith had given me on the gasoline tank for extra effectiveness, so that it could kill it if the explosion didn't. It was only a few meters away from us. I lit the gasoline bomb and threw it, and as it exploded, I grinned. Gotcha. So, the funny thing is, a group of redneck hunters found us later on. They had apparently found the hole in the explosion crater and investigated. John and I had suffered some mild burns from the enormous gasoline explosion, but the missing guy Sergio came out harmless besides the broken leg that he had already had. The redneck family dragged us all the way to their pickup truck and then drove us to the hospital, where we all got treated for our injuries. Sergio was found and reunited after a long disappearance, and Jonathan paid me in the thousands 
with the money I didn't expect him to have. And when I went back to the place where Sergio had disappeared, and where I had blown the beast high to the sky, I found a very strange, giant, half-human skeleton where I remembered it getting blown up. Sergio Alexander was found and I had killed one of the things that went bump in the night. Case closed. We unearthed a time traveler's ship at an archaeological dig. Written by Toucan the Rapper. No introduction needed, right? Archaeological dig. Time traveler's ship. You want me to get to the point. This works for me because I don't have long before the government figures out which car I'm hiding under her. I won't bother telling you how I graduated from Oxford or how I was pulled out of my previous dig salvaging the Baniya Buddha in Afghanistan when the US and co withdrew. All you need to know is I went with them and that's how I found myself about 50 miles southwest of Las Vegas staring at a pearlescent metal hatch. Blimey Freddy, you weren't kidding. I whistled, scratching the mole on my chin staring at the mottled blue steel column protruding from orange earth at the bottom of the 30-foot pit. Even though I was used to the baking sun for my time in the Hazarat Highlands, the shading coolness of the pit were welcomed by the time Freddy and I had climbed down there. I told you, Freddy said, taking off his battered trucker cap and scratching his balding head. It's a flying saucer. I don't know about any alien spacecraft, but it's definitely older than any metal construction buried here has any right being. Leona stood, brushing the dust off her knees, and turned away from the oil barrel-sized column with its wheel lock catch roof. She greeted me with a warm hug, Freddy a nod. This was unsurprising. Leona and I had been undergraduates together at Oxford. Leona and Freddy had only met the day before when her current university had called her about the phone call that they had received from him the day before that. She had called me when she had arrived, because I had called her the previous week to let her know that I was safely out of Afghanistan. I had agreed because of how Freddy had found the hatch, or more accurately, why he had been digging up the remote stretch of the desert he had somehow come to own. He had told Leona's university, who told Leona who told me, that he had found a treasure map. He owned a house on the same land. While renovating the remote property, he had found the map and coordinates hidden under some floorboards. Three days ago, he had rented a bulldozer and started going to town until he had found the hatch. He had told the university that he had found a UFO. The university told Leona that she still owed them one for the prescription addiction that they had kept hushed up. She told me a lot of swear words in French. I told her that I would get the next plane ticket from Wisconsin once I was done being processed at Fort McCoy. Confusing? Sorry. All you need to know is that everyone was where they were when Scott, who none of us knew, removed his headphones and turned off the metal detector that he had been waving around. It's definitely not a saucer, he said, scratching his goatee. Wherever this leads, it goes off in one direction. No signal round any edges of the pit except where you're stood. If it is a ship, this is at the nose. 
He gestured with a thumb over his shoulder to the hatch. His words intercut with the smack of chewing gum. So, like a pirate ship? Freddy asked, raising a pudgy eyebrow at the news the thing buried in his land wasn't a UFO, just like the one his grandpappy was there when they had found at Roswell. More like a submarine, I'll bet. That is, if it is a ship. It's probably just a bunker left here by some prepper during the Cold War. A bunker that's over 5,000 years old. Leona had her hands in her hips, grain-haired face incredulous. I've seen a lot of buried metal. I don't know what this thing is made of, but it looks like steel. Do you know how long steel takes to rust? When it's buried somewhere as dry as a desert. Signor, savoir des imbeciles. I couldn't see Scott's eyes behind the sunglasses, but I know they looked sheepish. It had been decades since I had made the impatient Leona swear in her native tongue, but I still remembered the experience. I felt for Scott. If he was here and Leona was here, it meant he was Leona's assistant. This meant he was an undergrad. If there was one thing Leona couldn't stand even when she was one, it was undergrads. Fortunately for Scott, and for you if you're bored of a middle-aged man getting nostalgic for a former flame, we weren't in the awkward silence long. The shrill hiss was deafening as soon as it started. No heck no. Freddy reached a pudgy arm into a duffel bag at the base of the pit's ladder. When he stood back up, the meaty limb was holding a shotgun. Before us three academics could register what was going on, Freddy had the barrel pointed at the corroded pearlescent steel column. Oh yeah, sure, a Cold War bunker. Freaking college students. Leona threw herself to the pit's edge, yelling, grabbing Scott by the arm and taking him with her as she went. They fell to the ground just in time to avoid being blasted by the thick vapor projected from three-fifths of the hatch's rim. Had Freddy and I stood a fraction to the right, we would have had to do the same. I ducked anyway though, only because the sudden high-pitched, gaseous whistling triggered the attuned fight-or-flight response that I had honed back in Afghanistan. It wasn't until I looked up that I realized how lucky Scott was that Leona had developed these same senses during the time with me she had spent there, living under the constant threat of rockets, grenades, and gunfire. The flat, almost a ring of steam reached all the way to the walls of the pit. Once it subsided after a few seconds of whistling, the densely packed sand and rock wasn't sand and rock anymore. It was glass, sparkling, slightly glowing, but still cooling glass. Thanks, Professor. Scott mumbled, pulling himself to his feet once the hatch had stopped, shrieking. The sheepish look I imagined behind those dark sunglasses had only gotten worse. Never mention it. Leona was already on her feet, once again brushing dust from her khakis. She turned to Freddy. Monsieur Frederick, please put down the gun. Freddy spat on the orange earth. The heck I will. I ain't about to let myself get eaten by some space monster. Monsieur Frederick, please. Whatever we're dealing with here, I don't think it's a... Thunk. Only Freddy didn't throw himself back to the pit floor. He raised the shotgun, aiming down the sights at the turned, rusting wheel on the center of the hatch. 
Leona Scott and I could only look up at the corroded steel column, miles agave, as the wheel lock unscrewed. It turned for thirty long seconds, unseen gears and cogs grinding for the first time in, according to Leona's assessment, millennia. Leona wasn't protesting anymore. She had run out of words, French or English. She was staring with wide eyes at the hatch, just like the men of the pit, too shocked to speak. She didn't even have the words when there was a second loud thunk, followed by a loud creaking. The fiery archaeology professor was silent, even as the rusted circular plate started to open on its thick, ancient hinges. She didn't need words when it claimed to fully open with a last, energetic swing, though. None of us did. We were too busy screaming. That's when I learned Freddy wasn't a man who messed around. I heard the click of him readying his weapon the instant the two sets of rubber-covered fingers appeared on the rim. He grunted in unison, with the top of a helmeted head emerging. He had already fired before I got a chance to take in any details of the figure, pulling itself out of the hole. What in God's name is wrong with you, you freaking American? We unarmed three screamed again. We heard the distant, metallic thump of the headless body hitting the bottom of the shaft within the pit, but not before we had the time to wipe red and glass from our shocked faces. See? Freddy yelled with a grin, staring around at the mess that he had made. I told you nerds it was a UFO. I told you there'd be a space monster. Ugh. This red tastes real human for a space monster. Scott was still laying on the floor, spitting dramatically and wiping flecks of splatter from his goatee. What? I'm just saying what we're all thinking, he added, when he saw Leona and I's horrified expressions. I couldn't argue with him, though. If you're screaming while in the presence of someone getting shot with a shotgun at point-blank range, chances are you're going to get some red in your mouth. I recognized the coppery tang on my tongue, too. I almost couldn't shake the knowledge that the chances of an alien having fingers and hands shaped exactly like a human being were astronomically slim. We couldn't stop Freddy from going down the hole, though. We did try. But we followed him, of course. Leona and I weren't about to let whatever lay inside this, whatever it was, be claimed by a redneck with a thing for aliens. And Scott came too, but he didn't have a choice because when he protested, Leona swore at him in French and that was the end of that. We were descending the ladder for about two minutes before we reached the bottom. Good thing I packed flashlights, huh? Sure enough, Freddy had three battery-powered torches in the duffel bag that he had slung over his shoulder before climbing into the hatch. This was indeed a good thing, too, because the space at the bottom was pitch black inside, from the thin rays of Nevada sun able to find their way this far down the hole. Scott vomited when they clicked into life, and even Freddy let out a, Jesus, followed by a sharp intake of breath. The figure Freddy had a shot had broken several limbs as it tumbled down the hole, a fair few more when it had landed at the bottom. There were a few sharp bones poking through its dark rubber suit. It didn't have a head, because as you'll recall, Freddy had eviscerated its head with buckshot. What did remain of the lower pieces and the base of it were surrounded by the remnants of a thick plastic-looking helmet. 
The interior was lined with a lime green gel and various pumps and frayed wires that ran from the interior into a thick tube. The socket where this tube would have connected had been lost to Freddy's shotgun, but the pack full of fluids with the wiring pipe filled cable trailing from it allowed me to paint a rough picture, one that I had confirmed in a few moments once we had started exploring the rest of the ship. What had shocked me about the figure, what had caused me to yell in the owner to clasp a pair of hands to her mouth, was the name badge on the headless distressingly human female corpse's chest. Ipset, Dr. Harper Gerard. A name, you know, Freddy asked, poking the body with his gun. Mine, Leona and I replied in unison, shooting each other an awkward glance immediately after. Freddy looked confused. Well, mine is Harper, hers is Gerard. I explained. Surely the university sent some paperwork. He shrugged. They might have done, but I'll be honest. The wife checks the mail. I just knew they were sending some science folk to poke around and sign the bit of paper that said I'd found a bona fide UFO. Leona rolled her eyes before turning to me. What do you think it means? What's Ipset? I'm frightened, Robert. I know. Me too. I recognize those hips. There. I know. I shot her a glare. I couldn't bear to hear out loud the observation that we had both made. I recognized those hips too. I had spent a whole evening staring at them on a dance floor many decades ago. On the first night, Leona and I's friendship gave me suffix. With benefits. We both tried to ignore our growing fears as we poached around the ship's entrance. The word Ipset meant nothing to me at the time. It wasn't until my torch illuminated some signage on the rusted wall spelling out Institutes of Paranatural Science, Events, and Technology that I knew it was an acronym. Other than this relevatory information, the room was pretty barren save for a rack containing another suit of the same kind the now-deceased Dr. Harper Gerard had been wearing. Scott had been right. The hatch was indeed at the nose of the ship. The room was a sharp triangle shape with the suit storage set into the thin wall at one end. The wider one at the other was featureless save for a door and a keypad. The keypad was a kind of fingerprint scanner. Its screen was still half illuminated despite the rust and chipped paint of the walls and the floor grades. The small LED flashed red with Freddy and Scott pressed their thumbs on the surface. With a faint beep, it turned green for Leona, prompting a gulp from us both. Her hand found its way into mine when the steel door hissed and slid open, something that hadn't happened in a long time. Holy crap, Freddy yelled, when we had collectively had enough time to try and make sense of the room beyond. You still don't think it's a UFO? No, Scott replied, voice weak and quiet. No, I think you're right. This is a UFO. Leona and I exchanged a sidelong glance when we took our first steps across the threshold. A UFO with signs on the wall in plain English. Aliens with names like Dr. Harper Gerard. I didn't say anything out loud because I didn't have a better explanation. But I knew straight away, whatever we had found here wasn't extraterrestrial. 
It wasn't until we got to the final room at the other end of the ship that the horrifying truth revealed itself. The vast chamber we found before this only created further questions for us to wonder about within the interim. It goes without saying that none of my knowledge of ancient civilizations was helpful. I had stopped relying on prior experience the moment that I saw the hatch. In this region of North America, you would expect to be excavating lost Gosuit and Panamint holy sites. Not ancient steel vessels that are somehow both rusted and more technologically advanced than anything you've ever seen. The middle section of the ship was mostly used as some kind of storage bay from the looks of things. This much we could work out. It doesn't take a genius to recognize stacked crates no matter how unfamiliar the plastic-like material they're made from looks. We were walking between stacks of these dark red crates for about five minutes. When we emerged in the clearing, we had spied from back of the doorway, visible only because of the dancing and the swirling lights above it on the distant ceiling. The heart of this ship was unlike any engine I've seen. Our torches were unnecessary. The hundreds of clear tubes sprouting from the floor-ceiling vat that made up the bulk of the engine's body were filled with a luminescent green liquid. It cast the engine in an emerald glow, carving out the array of components and mechanisms whose purposes I couldn't fathom with eerie chlorophyllic highlights. Now, I could guess the purpose of the bulbous dome set into the base of the vat though. And you don't need a doctorate in esoteric engineering to work out the meaning of power level 2%. It was a battery, and thanks to the glass viewing port on the dome's face, I can see from where the ship drew its power. I could see it, but I'm not sure I could believe it. I'm still not sure I want to. There is a man inside, a man wearing a mottled blue mask, of the same pearlescent metal as the hatch, although without the rust or corrosion. A man suspended in clear, bubbling fluid, connected to the engine by the glowing tubes that ran from it into the hidden ducts in the ship's ceiling. A man that as we could hear even through the thick glass and blue steel mask, was screaming. I couldn't tell how old he was. That's why all four of us started screaming with him when we saw him. His age kept changing. He was flickering, phasing in and out of existence every few seconds as we watched, at completely random intervals. When we arrived, his body was ancient, wizened and wrinkled and thin and then he flickered like his body was disrupted by static on an old television set. When he emerged, he was middle-aged, only a year or so younger than Leona and me. After the next flicker, he was a baby, then in his 20s, then a child, then on the cusp of puberty. My god. Freddy was so taken aback he actually lowered the barrel of his shotgun. Scott was somewhere off in the shadows of being sick again. I know the eyes beyond those glasses weren't sheepish anymore, unless Scott sobbed and blubbered when he was embarrassed. Leona's grip on my hand tightened. My god, Robert, we have to help that poor soul. Help me find a door. I don't think there is one, I replied, mouth dry. Don't touch it, we don't know what it is. I pulled her back towards me. 
stopping him from rushing to the shrieking man, boy baby, with tubes painfully grafted to his back. Aside from the pearlescent blue steel mask, they were the only thing in the battery tank that didn't shimmer or flicker. Just the poor man, boy baby, and his wretched, twisted body. Unfortunately, I wasn't close enough to stop Freddy. You son of a... We've got to get him out of there. Before any of us could stop him, he had dropped his shotgun and was feeling around the rim of the viewing glass for a hatch or a mechanism to open it. He was hammering on the flashing, power level 2% screen when the alarm started going off. Alert. Non-classified personnel detected. Mission compromised. Flushing remaining distemporal assets. Flushing non-classified personnel. Alert. Non-classified. The darkness around us was pierced now with red as well as emerald lighting. A shrill ringing blasted from hidden speakers, competing with the repeating security message to see which could deafen us first. Even Scott had to stop puking to ram his fingers into his ears. I felt Leona's grip leave mine, though I'm not sure who let go of who. From somewhere up ahead of us in the darkness, from the depths of the ship we hadn't yet explored, I could hear a man's screams even above the din. Because of what had happened to Freddy and Scott, my own screams soon joined his. As soon as the message had repeated itself twice, dozens of needle-thin hooks on string-like steel cables shot up from the floor around both of them. They both yelled as the miniature barbed grapples found purchase on their skin. My ears screamed when I had to take my hands off of them, but if I hadn't, I couldn't have held Leona back when the cables retracted. I'll never forget Freddy's face when the dozens of hooks snapped back into the floor. I'll never forget his screams as the barbs took lumps of his flesh with them. What will haunt me more is Scott's tears, the way I could see him mouthing for his mom even after one of the pneumatic micro-harpoons tore his bottom lip clean off his face, leaving teeth, gums, and jawbone exposed for display. The second wave of hooks followed the first, and just as quickly flailed whole sections of Freddy and Scott. By the time the rapid-fire onslaught to barbs and cable was finished, I was sobbing, backed into a corner, with Leona trying her hardest to bury herself forever in my chest. The ship's defense mechanism worked through both men like a school of piranha, turning them from mad to a cloud of red mist, to slack-jawed glistening skeletons in a few short minutes. The hooks didn't stop there, though. They continued shooting and digging, slicing and crushing bone until nothing at all remained of the Americans in our party. Non-classified personnel flushed. Remaining distemporal assets flushed. Mission compromised. Breach report filed. Contemporary upset pickup initiated. Non-classified personnel. The new message repeated as loudly as the first, but at least the alarm had stopped. Neither of us were in much of a state to appreciate that, though. I was too busy crying like a bullied child, and Leona was too busy jabbering nonsense in French. Somehow one of us managed to compose ourselves, and then the other... I don't know which one it was. I do know it was Leona that pointed out the scream from deeper in the ship. I was the one who wanted to run and never come back, and she was the one who won that argument. 
So, it was we found ourselves, after another five minutes, walking between rows and rows of dark red crates at a second door. I think somehow I knew even then what would happen when I put my thumb to it, because I didn't jump as much as Leona did. It was still enough to make me yelp though. The sight of that door unlocking and hissing open from my thumb filled me with dread and horror, second only that spawned by the contents of the room beyond. It was a bedroom. A poorly lit but remarkably clean and not rusted bedroom. There was a double bed against one wall, a desk, and a small tiled section in one corner to hide a combination shower, toilet, a sink space. It was a bedroom that had been lived in too. There were pens on the desk and a notepad, and a half-eaten sandwich free of mold. There was a red book face down on one pillow, and a cup of still steaming coffee on one of the bedside tables. There was even a microwave set into one wall. There were photographs next to the microwave, held on with plastic magnets to a bulky metal box which I assume was a fridge. I recognized the people in those photos, even though the faces were older than when I had seen them, and so did Leona. She knew the woman with hair slightly grayer than her own stood with a team of scientists in one, just as much as she knew the same even grayer woman, and a modest wedding dress stood next to a man I recognized in another. He was on a lot of photos, almost always with her. I knew his hairline, even if there was less of it. I knew the mole on his chin too. That alone would have been enough to prompt Leona and me to turn and run from the ship as fast as we could. We did, but not just because of how familiar yet old the couple in the photographs were. We ran because at the opposite end of the room were two glowing green pods. Both had Dr. Harper Gerard above them on steel plaques. One was empty, a trail of glistening footprints leading from it to the shower, toilet space, and to the fridge area, then the microwave, desk, and out the door. The other had a man in it, a man wearing a rubber suit with an ipset, Dr. Harper Gerard badge, a man with a thick black sludge pumping into him through the tube set into his mouth. Even though his eyes were crossed, there was bread pouring from his nostrils and tar-like slime pooling in his chin. I knew his face as well as I knew my own, because despite a few more wrinkles and a little more male pattern baldness, it was... We had been running so hard and fast that both of us had to stop and retch when we found ourselves back in the pit. I do remember that it was I who took Leona's hand the second time. Seeing my dead self in some kind of stasis pod broke me, and I think it was also the final piece of the who was the Dr. Harper Gerard that Freddy shot puzzle that had snapped Leona too because she didn't resist. She didn't stop to ask me why or swear in French. She just ran with me. She ran with me all the way to the hired car. She ran with me all the way back to the airport, on the flight back to London into my old home. She had been running with me since the Ipset guy showed up outside of her house, even though we had changed our names and went to great lengths to burn every paper trail. She was running with me all the way until early this morning, when they finally got her. We'd been moving around the UK for the last four years, we thought we would be safe in somewhere as remote and forgotten as a Dover court, but we were wrong. 
They're nearly at the car that I'm hiding under now. They've been chasing me on foot across Essex County all day. It's nearly midnight and I'm tired. Part of me thinks that I should give myself in. I won't though. They keep saying that they just want to talk to ask a couple of questions about what we had seen in Nevada. They keep telling me that Leona is safe. I believe them, but I'm still not going. I know that once I do, everything will be fine. And somehow in a few years, I'll find myself agreeing to being frozen in that dang time machine. Someone, probably Leona, will convince me that if we can set the awakening date just a little earlier, we'll be able to change things this time around. There will be some reason that we had to go back to, of course. Some apocalypse event so disturbing and so horrific that decent people like Leona and I will agree to travel in a time machine powered by a temporally displaced human in an arcane mask. That's why I'm hiding under the car. Destiny has called me, but I don't want to answer. I don't want to join Ipset. I don't want to save the world. I already tried and I already failed. The version of me that got out from under the car is dead, filled with black sludge somewhere and rotting in a stasis chamber underneath the Nevada desert. I know that it won't be any different when it's my turn. If you're reading this, please, somehow, volunteer yourself. I know one of you will be crazy enough to want to try this mission in my place. I know there will be plenty of you who hate your own mundane lives enough to pick apart the Ipset puzzle, to give your life purpose by sacrificing it to prevent whatever this apocalypse is. You might hate your life enough to want that, but I don't. I've only got a few decades left before I'm officially old, and I wanted to spend them with Leona, just not like this. I don't want to die as a distemporal asset. I don't want to spend my last seconds with a toxic purge fluid being flushed through my system, choking and in agony because my younger self allows Freddy to set off a security failsafe. I don't want to kiss Leona goodbye in the future, knowing what happens when she opens that hatch in the past. Our future selves weren't that much older than us. We had finally found each other after all these decades. We deserve more time. It's not fair. I'm a coward and I'm not ashamed of that. I don't want to die like my future self, cold and alone outside of my own present. I refuse for that to be my destiny. I'm not a martyr or a savior or some kind of chrononaut. I'm just a guy, a scared, helpless guy hiding under a car. Please, someone else step up and be the tragic hero of this story. I never asked to discover my future self in a time machine at an archaeological dig. My town's urban legend dates back to the 1600s, and there might be some truth to it. Written by Cryptic Wanderer This story is one that I've wanted to write for a while now, but the words have always escaped me. For one, it's true. I know every story is true, haha, very scary. This one, however, is as true as it gets. And as everyone knows, writing a series of incredible events while maintaining credibility is nearly impossible. 
I do invite and even encourage you to look it up on Google after the story's finished. The second reason I found it difficult is really it's two stories in one. There is a lot of history involved, and though the details differ depending on who tells it to you, my hometown of Biddeford was first inhabited by Europeans in 1616, making it one of the first places to be visited in America. But the general consensus is the load-bearing beam that I will include. Thank you for letting me ramble. Now for the story. I was born and raised in the city of Biddeford, Maine. The city itself is full of somewhat garbage people, but I wouldn't have wanted to grow up anywhere else. I had many wonderful memories, as the beach was an hour walk away, the backyard was sprawling, and the woods that led down to the river were right next to my house. It runs about 135 miles from New Hampshire and splits the towns of Biddeford and Saco, emptying out into the ocean beyond. Most mothers, my own included, did everything in their power to make sure their children didn't go to the water until three people died at the beginning of the year. Now this may sound morbid, and indeed it is, but for good reason. All the children in the cul-de-sac knew bits of information, usually clashing, but I had first heard the full story told by an old man named Rodney. Rodney was an old Native American man who lived on the other side of my backyard. His grandson, Josh, and I would often play games with each other and we became pretty good friends. Rodney was a good, spirited man, always telling us fun stories about the people from his lineage, and usually scary ones when we would put the tent up out back and camp out for the night. It was one such night that I heard the curse of the Saco River Back in the year of 1675, Winter Harbor, now known as Biddeford, was well established by the Europeans. The local Sokokis natives generally welcomed them, and boats would come and go along the Saco River. One such boat carried three white men, who were said to be drunk as a skunk, and meaner than one too. A woman who had given birth to the chief's son was upon one of the islands, carrying the child in tow. They decided to have a little fun and test out a story that they had once heard. It was said that Native Americans could doggy paddle from birth, and they wanted to find out, most likely making a few bets on it. Despite the woman's screams, they ripped the baby from her arms and threw him into the water. Unsurprisingly, the child had drowned. Some say that she went in after him, only to drown herself. 
others not. What eventually did happen though, is Chief Squandro, not to be confused with Squanto, found out and placed a curse on the river. Until the day white men clear the banks, the spirits of the river would take three lives a year. Now some say the three were killed right there, but regardless, there were no delegations made. In fact, it was said to ignite violence between the tribe and the Europeans, kicking off the war of King Philip. There was a little more to it than that, I'm sure, but it's been about 26 years now, so my memory is a tidbit fuzzy. The one thing I can never forget, in fact, it's probably what caused my terrible lifelong nightmares, is the night that he took us out fishing. Conveniently enough, Rodney took us by canoe out to Skelton Dam. It's a popular place for fishing and swimming. In late summer, the sun is warm, while being shaded by the large forest around it. And as the sun goes down, the sounds of wildlife makes it an unparalleled place to relax. He had paddled us downstream for about an hour when finally, the night came on. We didn't catch a whole lot, and honestly, at seven years old, I hardly even knew what I was doing. But I had fun with Josh and Rodney was telling more of his stories of the past. I don't know what time it was, possibly 10 or 11, but fog began rolling across the water. Rodney made a crack about these spirits making their way from the deep. When all the noise from the banks of the shore stopped, there were no insects, Birds or frogs to be heard. Just the quiet sloshing of water on wood. I don't think we even noticed at first. Not until I could see the dead serious look on old Ronnie's face. He didn't say it. He was scared. He said something to the effect of, Well, we better pack it in. So... We reeled in our fishing poles, and he started the long trip back up the river. Being children, Josh and I didn't really panic. Rodney was experienced in the woods, and though he stayed silent, he didn't much let on that something was wrong. He just kept his eyes forward and worked the oars. This went on for a while. The sounds of nature were still silent, and it seemed as though every small sound from one side of the river to the other. The fog was still present, and it was growing thicker by the minute. I don't know how Rodney didn't get lost, but I assume it wasn't his first time in conditions such as this. The closer that we got the more we let go of our fear. That is until the crying began. 
I couldn't tell from where, but like a gunshot out of the silence, this shrill, high-pitched sobbing rang out from the land. It would be so loud, like it was right next to you. And then it seemed to move away, only to return just as quickly. And to make it worse, the sobbing would erupt into insane bursts of laughter. Even thinking about it now, it makes me shiver. Not a male or a female. It was something I can't possibly find words to match with. As it continued, we started to hear the sounds of something jumping through the forest, easily keeping pace with the boat. I tried to block most of it out, but that's not something that ever goes away. I believe that was about the time that Josh and I began to cry ourselves. Rodney tried to comfort us, telling us to just keep our heads down and to cover our ears. But most of his efforts were spent rowing in a panic-driven manner. The tone of his voice was quick and stern. Nothing like the tight look on his face. And I believe that he was praying. The sob crying stopped after a bit to our belief. However, it was short-lived. A woman's voice shot out from somewhere, distant but also close. In a bone-shivering tone, it screamed, Help me! I looked out through the fog. It wasn't a woman that I saw, however. On the bank to the right, I could make out a thin figure. Not too many details were visible. Aside from the long horns that sprouted up from its head, like that of a deer. The image quickly melted back into the fog, and it disappeared. Once again, Help me, please, came from the bank. This time, the opposite one, however. The one closest to us. As this happened, the sound of drums came, and quickly crescendoed their way all around us like that of a dozen or more people playing drums. Rodney told us once again not to look, and steered the canoe away towards the center of the river. Like the idiot kid I was, I looked as large green orbs of light began to appear, along with multiple little men. I say men, but they were all much too short, and the shape wasn't quite right. It was almost like a group of animals were all lined up along the shore, just staring at us, as that ghastly cry for help continued to follow, switching sides from time to time. I'm fairly certain that I soiled myself by then. I don't think I've ever been so scared in my life, including my current age. Unfortunately, our boat trip wasn't quite over yet. The fog was a constant, and it would swallow everything almost as quickly as it appeared. As terrifying as the things on the bank were, at least they couldn't get to us. Or so I thought. 
we must have been pretty close to the boat launch by that point. But before we could get there, the sounds of splashing erupted on all sides of us. The occasional slosh of water told us that there was something around our boat. And it wasn't long until the knocking began. It was soft at first, more like something was rubbing the sides of the canoe. And then it turned into scratching, but they quickly got louder, as if people were pounding their fists against these sides of the canoe. It was getting so bad that I thought we were going to tip over. And poor old Rodney, he was rowing like a madman, the panic on his face as clear as day. He was no longer trying to be silent, and I could even see someone trying to grab and pull at the oars. These sort of short arms that grabbed at whatever they could. Luckily, we finally made it to the boat launch, Rodney practically throwing us on the land. He didn't even bother with our bags or our fishing stuff either. I was somewhat upset the next day, but I can't blame him one bit. We all ran to his truck, still hearing the drums beat all around us, now coupled with the sounds of loud growls. I can't tell you what for sure, but some sort of animals were pacing around the fog on all fours. They kept their distance, thank God, but before we were fully on the road, we were in for one more surprise. The branches and the leaves of the tree off to the left of the truck, they began shuffling. The forest here is thick, so it was hard to see what it was. But some sort of large bird burst through the canopy and shot across the lake. I've never seen anything so monstrously huge in my entire life. Rodney later told me he believed it was a thunderbird. I'm not sure, but the wingspan was anywhere from 20 to 30 feet long. Since that night, I stayed away from the river. In fact, I moved halfway across the country. I can't really tell you a whole lot else from that night. I never got many answers myself. I can tell you, however, that I believe in the curse of the Sago River wholeheartedly, as well as its spirits. Do not go into that river, unless, of course, three people have already been found in it. I'm a priest. Every single day, the same man comes to church for a confession. Written by Lady of Hell I'm probably breaking the law by writing this down. Of course a priest is not allowed to tell anything that was said in confession. But I think this man is an exception. I need to tell someone. Anyone. I was a priest for quite a few years now, and I had gotten used to the job. So, 
When a man came into the church and went straight for the confession booth, Maya wasn't surprised at all. He didn't introduce himself, but that was not unusual either. Some people preferred to be totally anonymous when they confessed their sins. I didn't get to see him properly. He wore a gray sweater and its hood was pulled deep into his face, obscuring all his features. Still, I didn't think too much about it. I just joined him in the booth like I was supposed to do and greeted him with these same words I had spoken countless times already. He stayed silent at first. I gave him a bit of time because I thought he just didn't know how to begin. But after several minutes, I asked him what he wanted to confess. A few more seconds passed by, and then he spoke. He told me that he had gone into the woods, and he said that in a tone as if I should have known that already. That was all. He didn't elaborate any further, as if that would already count as a sin. I thought him to be a hunter then, asking for forgiveness for the lives of the animals that he had killed. Maybe it had been his first hunt, and the weight of the innocent lives were heavy upon him. I asked him to continue. He told me about a small clearing where the grass is greener than in the rest of the forest, and about the small cabin that stood on said clearing. And then he fell silent again. I asked why he had considered this a sin. That made him laugh for a second, and the sound made my skin crawl. It was an ugly, manic laugh. He didn't explain his reasoning, just stood up and laughed. I was taken aback by all of this, sure, but I just assumed that it had been some weird joke. Either way, I was certain I'd never see the strange man again. I was wrong, of course. He came to the church the next day and walked straight to the confession booth once again, expecting me to follow him. Of course I did. That was my job, and I also hoped he would clear a few things up. I had thought a lot about his earlier confession. He only said he barely slept lately. I answered that I too struggled with insomnia and asked once again why he considered this a sin. He laughed again. I wanted to tear my skin off. There was another person who visited the church frequently, outside of these services on Sunday. A young woman who always sat in one of the front rows and silently prayed for a while. We talked a bit sometimes, and she was very polite. I liked her. When she came by the next time, she told me how she felt watched in her own home, and she didn't feel safe there anymore. She prayed for that terrible feeling to go away, 
and I took the time to pray for her safety. The strange man came by every single day, and he always spoke one or two sentences at most. None of them were a sin. After just three days, he started repeating himself, talking about the woods and about his insomnia again. Always these same things, like a broken record. Even the wording was the same. The first change came the day after my conversation with the young woman, as he stayed silent at first. I asked him if he knew her, just because I had had a bad feeling about him. He laughed. I bit down on my lip until I bled. He didn't say a word that day. The man was bad news and I knew it. His visits were going on for over a week at this point, and I had yet to see his face. He always wore that hood, and he went straight to the booth each time. Sometimes I only saw him in the corner of my eye. There was no pattern in his arrival. I tried coming in sooner or later, but it made no difference. He came by a few minutes after I got there. He seemed to know when he had to arrive to meet me. After his strange reaction to my question, I was even more worried about the young woman. Knowing that a freak like him was out there made my insomnia even worse. I lay awake in my bed, thinking about her. When I couldn't take it any longer, I drove over to her house because... I felt like the least I could do was bless her apartment. I hoped that it would make her feel better. She was reluctant to let me in at first, and the poor thing, completely paranoid about something she didn't even know if it was real. She had never seen someone, she had told me earlier, but there had been the most intense feeling of being watched. I explained my intentions and then she finally stepped aside and let me into the flat. She appreciated what I was going to do, she told me. She would indeed feel safer if someone blessed the house. Then at least she could be sure God watched over her. I intended to begin where the feeling was the worst. Her bedroom. It had a single window that faced towards the backyard, and as I stood alone in that room and I looked outside, I saw him standing there. He faced me, though his face was hidden under the hood of his gray sweater, and he stood perfectly still. We stayed like that for several seconds. He began to laugh. The window was closed, but the sound was so loud as if he stood right beside me. I scratched my skin violently. The young woman burst into the room and yelled at me to leave. I tried to ask her if she knew the man, but she didn't let me speak a single word. Just screamed at me that I should get out of her flat and never come back again. She cried and basically shoved me outside. I told her to call the police. 
she almost slammed the door into my face. She did call the police. They apparently found the suspect and questioned him, but he seemed perfectly sane and not at all likely to stalk someone, and they dropped the case again. There was no evidence after all. The man came to church as always, but after the police had gotten involved, the monotony of his confessions were changed. I remember his words clearly. Don't try to lock me away, father, he hissed, and his voice was cold and cruel and oh so angry. I'd been locked away for far too long. The young woman didn't come to church anymore. The monotonous confessions of the man continued, every single day like clockwork. The woods and his insomnia, always told with the same words. I tried to catch him a few times, to exit the booth at the same time as him, just to see his face at least. He was always gone by the time I exited. After just a few days, I decided to visit the clearing the man always mentioned. The grass was indeed greener around the small cabin, and as I walked up to the building, I had the most intense feeling of deja vu. The stench of decay hung in the air. I was just about to touch the doorknob as intense vertigo hit me. I must have blacked out at this point, because the next thing I knew, I was sitting in the confession booth, with the strange man on the other side. He asked me when I had last slept. I had no answer, and he laughed and I dragged my fingernails across my face until I bled. The insomnia, it took its toll. I blacked out for short periods of time. A day later, I found myself kneeling in front of the altar, the gilded chalice with red wine in my hands, and I couldn't remember how I got there. But I remembered that I had intended to pray for the young woman, and I did just that. And then I rose the chalice to my lips and I drank. The wine tasted off. I was hyper aware of the metallic taste that must have belonged to the chalice, and I wondered if it was growing rust. My prayers had no use though. I had heard from another church member that the young woman had gone missing. I knew that she was dead, and I knew where she was buried. But I had not a single piece of evidence and I didn't want to raise suspicion about myself. So I never called the police. God would judge the strange man, I told myself. He could not escape his punishment. The day after I heard about the woman's disappearance, the strange man was already waiting in the booth for me when I arrived. There was no visible clue that he was in there but I was sure about it. And although I could have just turned around and went back home, what I probably should have done, I resigned to my fate and entered the booth. 
He spoke without hesitation this time, and these words are burned into my mind by now. Do you want to confess your sins, father? He asked, and he sounded smug, somehow satisfied. I stayed silent, not knowing what he expected me to say. I wasn't aware of any sins that I had committed lately, none that would interest him at least. Instead, I wanted to ask him why our roles were suddenly subverted. But he started to laugh, and I tried to claw off my face again. A few days later, I met another woman at church. I had seen her at almost every service. We had never talked before, but she always smiled politely. She stayed behind after the latest service and asked if I was alright. Apparently, she was worried because of all the deep scratches on my face, but I couldn't tell her the truth, so I said nothing at all. She was really nice said that I didn't have to tell her, but that she was always there to talk if I wanted to. I have yet to accept that offer. The situation with the strange man didn't change. He was waiting for me every day when I entered the church, and each time he asked the same question. Do you want to confess your sins, Father? I never answered. He always laughed and I scratched my face open until one of us got tired of it and laughed. It's been like that for six weeks now. I don't know what to do anymore. I can't remember the last time I slept. The strange man's laughter echoes through my head at any given moment. My skin is a torn mess to the point where I have trouble to get the red out of my clothes. One of my favorite sweaters is ruined already. I know I should just not walk into the confession booth. I should stop talking to him, but I can't. I tried and I always ended up in that booth, tearing my skin open when he laughed. Maybe I should just confess my sins. If I only knew what he wants to hear. That's all I have. Maybe somebody can help me and tell me how to get rid of him. Until then, I have more important matters to take care of. The next service is soon and we're all out of wine. I need to go get some more. Thank you all for tuning in for today's stories. I hope you're all having a wonderful October. We're in the final stretch before the best holiday of the year and I hope you're as excited as I am. I would like to also extend a big thank you to today's sponsors, Shudder. To try Shudder free for 30 days, and go to Shudder.com and use promo code MrGreaves. And Wondery. You can listen to amazing podcasts one week early and ad-free by joining Wondery Plus and the Wondery app. Wherever you may be in the world, I hope you have an amazing day or night. It won't be long now until Halloween, so it's more important than ever to make sure to stay creepy.